There's just, there's so much to be said about it. And, and even with it, though, there is, there's an incredible amount of what I would call mystery, that there's an incredible amount of unknown. There's, there's various interpretations of this particular passage, which I looked at, and the, the interesting thing about it is that as I observed this, Jesus didn't really explain himself. He put it out there, and he put it out there for our, our uh, wrestling with. And even when they misunderstood him, and they, they thought he, but when he was talking about eating my flesh and drinking his blood, eating his flesh and drinking his blood, they, they, they were trying to accuse him of cannibalism, which, which could have been a, a form of, of uh, ridicule. Because sometimes when you want to ridicule someone, you will take what they say and you will hyperbolize it, right? You will exaggerate it to the point to where you turn it into something that they didn't really intend to communicate even though it was their words. And, and I've seen this all my life, um, uh, it kind of as a, a form of, of putting someone down. And, and even when they accuse him of demanding of them cannibalism, he doesn't correct them. If you look at it, too, in this passage, he doubles down more than once. It starts talking about eating his flesh. They begin to argue about it. Instead of saying, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Which is what you and I would normally be inclined to say. He doubles down and then he goes on to say, if you eat my flesh and then drink my blood. I'll get to that in a minute. But for a Jew to hear that, that was horrendous. He doubles down on them. And, and this, is a, this, is, this discourse, this bread of life discourse is, is really offensive. I'll get to that in a minute as well. I think I'll just stop and start reading the passage and, and, then, and then give you some remarks on it. In verse 40, just where I want to start, reading to you this morning from the New American Standard 2020, John chapter 6, says, For this is the will of my Father, now, they claim to have a relationship with the Father. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son, this is very important. This ties into what we're going to read later on in this chapter. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. So then the Jews were complaining about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whom the father and mother we know? How does, now, how does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, stop complaining among yourselves. Interesting that that word, uh, where it talks about them complaining in the New King James is the word murmuring. It's the same word that was used in the Septuagint 
to describe what the children of Israel did when they were in um, the wilderness, eating what every day? Manna. Bread from where? Heaven. A lot of correlations to that story in Exodus. Actually, that whole situation that was about 40 years. And it says, and, and it is written by the prophets, excuse me, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. We talked about this last week. I'm just getting some momentum here. And it is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Okay, sees and believes Jesus has eternal life. Now, heard and learned from the Father comes to Jesus. So there's your second couplet, if you will, here. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from the Father. He has seen the Son. He's referring, he has seen the Father. Excuse me. He's referring to himself. And then he gives him that important pay attention statement, truly, truly, or as in the old King James, verily, verily, I say to you. The one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. The one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down, comes down out of heaven so that anyone may eat from it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever and the bread which I give for the life of the world also is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, that's not what I said. Or that's not what I meant. No, it's not in there, is it? Okay. He says, verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, another reference to the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, the one who eats me, he'll also live because of me. 57 is a wonderful verse if you really give it some thought. This is the bread that came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. And the one who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So then many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this statement is very unpleasant. Do you agree with him? This is difficult, okay? This statement is very unpleasant. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, aware that his disciples were complaining about this, said to them, is this offensive to you? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit, verse 63, is incredibly important. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh provides no benefit. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. 
but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were and who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it be granted him. That word could also be translated gifted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples left and would no longer walk with Jesus. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts as we look into your word this morning. Lord, this is a difficult passage. This is a difficult teaching. Help us, Lord, to apprehend it. So we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit that we might receive from you. Grant us understanding. Grant us illumination. Help us to hear your voice through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Certain parts of this passage have to set the tone or the context of what Jesus is teaching. When he's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, obviously he's speaking spiritually. But what does that mean? And there are various interpretations, interpretations of what this means. Jesus doesn't fully go on to explain it, does he? He just puts it out there and leaves it for each of us to wrestle with. I wrestled with it all week. I really wrestled with it. Yesterday, I think I dreamed about it half, half the night last night, wrestled with it this morning as soon as I woke up. Obviously, it, he's speaking spiritually, but what he's saying here, it, it, some of these pat verses that really stick out to me, like verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes has eternal life. Okay. I'll give you some of my own. Well, I do that anyway, right? I'll give you some of my own thoughts on this. That's an anchor verse in this passage. I can misunderstand everything else that he's saying in this passage. But I've got to get verse 47 right. I've got to trust in him. I have to believe in him. Uh, the word believe is used so many times. I went through and I counted them. I think I told you last week and I can't remember what it was. But the word believe is used so many times in the Gospel of John. And, and if I trust in him as my Lord and Savior, then everything else is eventually going to be okay. Eventually. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. But that's an anchor that I can hold on to. In, in reading ahead in John 60 where, where it says, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? It's a good question. I, th and I thought about this this morning. I thought, I don't know that I do. I'm teaching on it. I'm not so sure I've, I've totally grasped it. 
You see, the Bible is not always easy to understand, is it? Because it requires, I think it requires thought. It requires additional study. It requires prayer. It requires communion with God so that he reveals some of these things to us in his time that the Holy Spirit might grant us understanding or give us understanding, which opens us up. I'm going to stir up a lot this, this morning. I'm going, to, I'm going to stir the pot, okay? But this opens us up to a very subjective faith. We really give this some thought. Have you ever been wrong about anything in the Bible? Don't raise your hand. Have you ever changed your mind because what you believe you no longer believe? I have. I think that is part of the process of working out our own salvation in fear and trembling. But it, of course it is God in us who does that work. And as I thought about this, and I, I, I shouldn't share this with you because some people, it unsettles them some, but, but I have to wonder how much of it we really got right as a church. And I don't know the answer to that. See, I teach what I teach because I'm based on the conviction, based on my study, based on my prayer. But what about those who disagree with me who go through the same process? And there are some that do. Some of you disagree with me on different things. Recently, some of you have told me how much you disagree with me on certain things. I'm okay with that. But I wonder, and that's why I'm convinced there's seminary in heaven, because we're going to need it. The problem with a subjective faith, and if we are honest with ourselves, all of us have a subjective faith. Even if all we do is tap it into our favorite teachers. And I've talked to folks at times that if I contradict their favorite teacher, then I'm automatically wrong because their favorite teacher can't be. Well, maybe he is right. Maybe I am wrong. But the problem with the subjective faith is that we can come up with things that are totally off the wall. And I've talked to several people over the years who have come up with things that are totally off the wall. And it's like almost 2,000 years of church history and they got it wrong and you finally got it right. Have you ever met people like that? That usually is a red flag, that there's a problem there. But we work out our fear and trembling, our, our salvation in fear and trembling. And I'm thinking, no wonder why there's so many denominations. No wonder why the church in Sisters, Oregon, meets in several locations at 10 o'clock on Sunday. Because we're all trying to come to an understanding of the truth. 
It's a hard saying that Jesus says here. Proverbs 25, 2, it says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. It is the glory of God to conceal, the glory of kings to search out a matter. Now, are we a nation of priests and kings? Yes, we are. So Proverbs 25, 2 is talking about each one of you. It is our glory to search out a matter. I think the Bible is very, very, very important. As, the more I, as I thought about this earlier this morning, um, my, my thoughts started running together so much. But in the Jewish culture of the day, the most important thing that they valued, the greatest thing that they did was studying Torah particularly. Studying the first five books of the Bible, the teachings, which is what the word Torah actually means. They were very learned. They knew the prophets. They knew the writings. They knew Torah. And I know that when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes has eternal life, verse 47 again, that I can hang my hat on that and I can trust in that and I can go forward from that. I became a Christian when I was eight and if you'd thrown John 6 at me, I wouldn't have known what to do with it. Here, 20 years later, okay, maybe almost 60 years later, I'm not so sure I really know what to do with it either. But you have a context here. Jesus is declaring himself as the bread of life. Comparing himself to the manna that was given to the fathers in the wilderness. Telling us that we have to eat his flesh and then he doubles down because they get upset over this idea of eating the flesh of Jesus. So he doubles down and says you have to also drink my blood. And then in the delivery style of teaching these people, what does he do? He sticks to his guns and he doesn't clarify. He goes on to say in verse 50, this is the bread that comes down out of heaven so that anyone may eat from it and not die. He's referring to himself. He's telling us to consume Christ. Getting back, I didn't quite finish my thought with the, with the Jews. The most important thing they did was study Scripture. And I, I thought about that this morning. What is the most important thing in your life? Now, I know, I, I, and, and some, we all kind of do it different ways. Some of you are on these year-long reading plans, and I think that's great. I've never done one, probably never will. It just doesn't work for me. It's just the way I'm wired or not wired, okay? I'd rather spend a little bit of time, excuse me, a lot of time with a little bit of Scripture and really try to grab a hold of what it's really saying rather than just try to go through this. I've got to get the Bible read in a year. Now, if that's your priority, if that's what you want to do, God bless you, all right? I'm not, I'm not knocking it. It just doesn't work for me. But 
But he tells us that when we partake of him, when we consume him, and what does John chapter 1 tell us about him? He's the Logos. He's the Word. There's this correlation between the person, the actual person of Jesus Christ, and, and the word by which he has given us his truth. And when we, we spend time in the word, I'm almost convinced I could spend the rest of my life just in the Gospels and not only not get bored, but probably continue to learn things. Sometimes I'm, I'm not sure we really give them the full attention that they really do. After all, they re- they ha- well, the entire Bible is the Word of God, right? But the, the Gospels contain the words of Jesus while he was here in the flesh, explaining his ministry to us. And he does this comparison. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. Physical food. The bread that comes down out of heaven so that anyone may eat from it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I will give for the life of the world also is my flesh. Now, that must have freaked them out. And then when he doubles down in verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless anyone eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Now, according to Torah, you didn't eat meat with blood in it. It's found in a few places in Torah. According to Torah, which I believe is Leviticus chapter 3, you didn't eat the blood. You left the blood alone. It's Leviticus 3, Leviticus 7, Genesis 9, Deuteronomy 12, Leviticus 17. Excuse me, I said 7, I meant 17. Leviticus 3, 17 says, This shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You shall not eat neither fat nor blood. They knew Torah. They probably were well aware of this. Along comes Jesus of Nazareth who claims to be the Messiah and he says you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Even understanding it spiritually becomes offensive to them, I believe. Because he's using an illustration that is completely contrary to the prohibitions of Torah. So much for consistency. But the understanding of this really goes back to the Midrash that was written On Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 24 says, Nothing is better for a man than he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. 
in the midrash, in this discussion between the rabbis, they understood that the, the eating and the drinking was Torah, living by Torah, and good works. So they understood this idea of eating and drinking symbolically. They already understood it. But nonetheless, it's an offense to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, 23, it says, For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. Romans 9, <clears throat> 32, 33 says, They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of, of stumbling. We, we studied uh, uh, Psalm 2 on Wednesday night. I will set my king on my holy hill of Zion. You do me a favor, just bump it up one degree, um, if you could, uh, Tim. Just one degree. It makes a whole difference in the world, sort of. Well, I know you get cold easy, so I should get used to that as well. But anyway, um, a rock, a stumbling stone in Zion, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him, that is in Jesus Christ, will not be put to shame. Why? Because truly, truly, verse 47 of John 6, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes has eternal life. So I can walk through this and say, I'm not sure about this passage, but I know of whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. It's an old hymn. Then he goes on to say, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, that really is a parallel to what he said earlier I, at the very beginning of this passage. For he says, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Sees and believes. Verse 45, hears and learns from the Father. Now in verse 54, eats and drinks. You have these three couplets that are in this, this discourse uh, where Jesus is saying, and, and he's saying that, that, that the means by which we gain eternal life is the seeing and the believing in Christ. The inward accepting of the fact that we have a suffering Savior who will be the Passover lamb who will give his life for the sins of the world. We saw that in, for, in John chapter 1, verse 29, and also mentioned in John chapter 6, verse 33. I didn't back up quite that far. We're speaking spiritually. There are some groups who say this has to do with communion. I, I, I read the argument. It was actually a compelling argument. I won't, I won't take the time to go there with you this morning. Compelling, but I wasn't convinced. All right. But I think this passage should inform us when we do come to the table. Good, I got some of you thinking. Should I explain or should I pull a Jesus and not explain it? No, I'm kidding. He can do that. I probably shouldn't, huh? 
ludicrous. He's a little bit way up the food chain compared to me. You know that. Because when we take the bread and we drink of the cup, Romans, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 11, and I read it to you often, tells us as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do, do what? We do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Memorializing his death, looking forward to his coming. All right? That's the context by which Paul gives us, yes. But in the meantime, in the meantime, in my life, in your life, in our lives, as we remember, we still have to live as we look forward to his coming. Now, I don't believe that, I, do, I believe it's bread, I believe it's juice, all right? I don't believe that it becomes magical, mystical, or anything else. But the thing is, the fact that the Lord has instructed us to do it, is an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to engage with each of us on a level that, quite frankly, transcends our thinking and speaks to our souls. And it's like there are times that I know something is true, but I can't explain why. And I told you guys this a couple of weeks ago. I probably have learned more about communion by looking at your faces when we come to the table and take communion that I've read from any passage in the scripture or, or any commentary or anything else because I, I sense the move of the Holy Spirit speaking to you rather than just this stale, sterile, cold, flat remembrance we actually get this opportunity to come to the table. And we partake of the body and of the blood in remembrance of him. Knowing that in reality, that act of communion is something that we should do in our hearts. Follow my thinking here. Something we should do in our hearts each and every day. As I partake of Christ. As I feed on the body. As I drink of the life. The Bible tells us in Leviticus, life is in what? The blood. As I receive the life of the Holy Spirit who enlivens me, who empowers me, who helps me, who assists me just to get through a given day without me just losing my mind. The spiritual food that I receive from him each and every day as I look into his word that feeds me spiritually, that allows me to continue on and that the Holy Spirit uses in my life as building blocks for our future for my future, for the next day, for the next moment. Manna was only good for one day in the wilderness, right? Because if they kept more than what they ate the next day when they woke up, what happened to it? 
it's spoiled, with the exception of the Sabbath. They got, they got a double portion, and, and God miracul miraculously preserved it for them. As I thought about this, again, and the question, how much do we prioritize the study of God's word? How much do we prioritize the spending time with God throughout our day? Is it really true that in him we live and we move and we have our being, or we are allowing other things of the world to garner our attention, things that do not feed us, things that are nothing more than junk food, things that do nothing more than bloat us spiritually or make us malnourished spiritually? Are we feeding on Christ? Are we allowing him by his spirit to nourish us spiritually? He goes on to say, for my flesh is true food and my body is true drink. That fascinated me because when I talked about not eating last week a little bit, didn't I, about how some people, you know, 40 days, if you fast 40 days, you're probably going to starve if you don't eat right away. Some people believe that they're fasting if they haven't had anything to eat for 40 minutes, right? Well, not, nobody here, of course. We just know of people who do that, right? But how, if physical food is important, and I would submit to you that it is, incidentally, as I mentioned last week, I'll remind you that bread was a staple in that culture at that time. Bread was one of their main foods. They didn't go get frozen yogurt, right? It wasn't, there wasn't any such a thing, right? Ice cream. Much of their diet consisted of them eating bread. And his flesh, the person of who he is. I love the way Paul said it to Timothy where he talked about them to receive the engrafted word. That is, like a tree where you graft in a stalk or some type of a branch where you graft it in and that tree that stalk, that branch becomes a part of the tree. We have the illustration also for us in Romans 11 where the Gentiles are grafted in to receive the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. I understand that. So did Paul when he wrote that to Timothy. But there's this idea of the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him just as, I, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. The one who eats of me will also live because of me. This is further enhancing this idea of seeing and believing, of eating and drinking. This idea of abiding in Christ, which Jesus will talk about later on in the book of John. <coughs> but it's t 
talking about how we abide in him. In him we live and we move and we have our being. Chapter 1 of Ephesians, it talks about in him, in him, in Christ, in him. Of course, in him we live and move and have our being. That's Max 19. But there's this, this calling that we have to consume him. To take him in. To make him a part of who we are. Because, again, I, I've, talked to, I, I've talked to people... I know of people, I get tired of even telling some of the same stories about some of these people to you, where they, they know the word of God. They have a form of godliness. But I don't see any power. I see legalism. I see a Christianized version of them. Or I could even say I see a version of them in Christianity. Because who is it? And I don't care really who said it, but I'll just bring it up. Who said it? We are what we eat. I think there's some truth to that. Is that right, nurse? We are what we eat. Especially if you eat nothing but junk food, you become... A receptacle of junk food. Oh, we'll just leave that alone, okay? You've become a receptacle of junk food, all right? But we are what we eat. Programmers understand this with input-output. Even came up with a saying, garbage in, garbage out. Christ in, Christ out. Isn't that right? So she knows. This is the bread that came out down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. How many times is he saying that? And yet it's very unpleasant, according to what we see in verse 60. It's very unpleasant. Who can listen to this? You know, at times I've really picked on modernism because of their desire to want to know and understand everything, and, 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 and that, that desire really sets the, the cultural framework. But here we have the same problem back there on the first century. Because they did not understand, they quit. Because they did not, it did not make sense to them. And often, I think it is part of... Part of our problem is, is we want this to make sense for us so that we can master over it. So that we're still really in the driver's seat. And we're really still calling the shots about what our Christianity is all about rather than eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Christ because that will conform you into his image, not you. Not yours. And let's face it, we all have those times in our life that we really want to be conformed to the image of Christ, and then we also have those times in our life that we're really glad we're not. Because I want to be like me right now, especially when we get angry. 
None of you guys get angry, do you? None of you, right? Talking about my last church, okay. The offense of the gospel. The stumbling block of the gospel. He offends them in order to save them. He offends us in order to save us. I remember there was this woman, she was... She had a husband that was, he had a drug problem. And uh, <clears throat> because she drug him to church every Sunday morning, right? Whether he wanted to go or not, he didn't want to go, right? And, and she knew that, she knew that, they ended up moving away, I think. But anyway, she knew that this church was the right place for them because he would leave mad every Sunday. I didn't try to make him mad. I mean, if I, I could really go off on the last day this morning and make a lot of you mad, but I'm not going to go there yet. We will in John 12, by the way. But the offense of the gospel. Sometimes we try to make it too easy. Or sometimes we try to make it too compromising. See, this fascinates me because Jesus did not soften this. He doubles down. In verse 66, as a result of many of his disciples less, uh, left and they would n no longer walk with him. He thinned out the crowd. That's tragic. That's incredibly tragic because the thing is, is what I've learned, and I've only been a Christian for a few years, I guess. But anyway, but what I've learned over the years of my walk with Christ is that if I'm offended, that's usually because I needed to be. hate really telling you that. But I think with love and with care and with consideration and with compassion, we share the gospel with others. But don't turn Jesus into a dog and pony show so that you can get a convert. He didn't. He stuck to his guns. And they were offended. For this reason, I have told you that no one can come to me unless it be granted him by, from my Father. What is, we'll get into that next week, all right? But they were offended. They left. Did they come back? I don't know. And Jesus leaves us with this teaching. Eat the flesh. Drink the blood. Consume Christ. Allow him to be part of you internally. Not only for our salvation, but for our growth in Christ as well. Verses 54 and verses 56 where it talks about eat and drink. I, I didn't, I'm going to throw this out and then I'm going to be done. 
One of my favorite commentators talked about verse 53 when it talked about eating and drinking the, the flesh and drinking the blood. That is, it's in the er grammar time, okay? The aorist tense, which means a one-time event, right? And he brought that up in verse, talking about this passage. Well, it is, that's true in verse 53. And he's still going to be my favorite commentator, but I busted him on this one because in verse 54 and in verse 56, it's not aorist. The word eat, the word drink, is in the present tense in the Greek, which means a continuous action. A continuous action. I can't just have a meal the first of the month and expect it to sustain me all month. Oh, I ate 1st of July. I'm good. You know, doesn't work that way, does it? Some of you who are the 40-minute people, of course, none of you are. But anyway, you would know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Continuously eating. Continuously drinking. And I love what Peter says, because you alone, he says to Jesus, have the words of life. You alone have the words of life. Not all this stuff that's unimportant that we probably give too much of our attention towards. I'll just leave it at that.